Let's turn to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. We are uh, returning now to our series in Joshua. We took a break for Christmas and for a couple topical sermons, but we are returning to, to Joshua and we find Joshua and the people in, verse, in chapter 7 where we pick up. They're about to try to attack another city. They've attacked Jericho, but things aren't going to go quite as well this go-round as it did at Jericho. So here now the word of the Lord from Joshua chapter 7. By the way, if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on 339. The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. The men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up. Let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled. They fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebar, uh, Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? Would that we would have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's, let's pray. So Lord, we ask your blessing uh, on the preaching of your word. Father, we pray that you anoint the hearer and the preacher alike. Lord, that having um, come into your presence, it would be changed and transformed. We'll be with us now, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, God had called them, God had called Israel to victory, but on his terms. God had called victory, Israel to victory, but on his terms. God had called his people out of Egypt. Uh, out of Egypt, I've called my son. He called them out of Egypt and they, he led them into the wilderness. And he met with them at Mount Sinai where he entered into covenant with them. So then it was time to leave Sinai. And so he took them to the edge of the promised land and, and spies went in. But they were fearful and disobedient. At least 10 of the 12 were. And so Israel refused to go into the promised land. And so they wandered around for 40 years being fed by the Lord with manna, being provided for. But, but then it was time to go into the promised land. So he called them to victory, but on his own terms. He gave them a great promise in Joshua 1 verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. Speaking to Joshua, I will not leave you or forsake you. And this was realized when the people of God came up against Jericho. And God provided an amazing way of, of victory in it, on his own terms over Jericho. 
The city walls fell down as the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted. And apparently not a single Israelite was killed as the whole city was put to the sword and destroyed. So we find ourselves at the end of chapter 6, in verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. But you know, something changed though. Something happened. Because see, we see in our account this morning, the battle of Ai, that suddenly God was not with his people. Suddenly God left his his own people with whom he was in covenant to fight for themselves. See, he had called them to victory. The problem is, he had called them to victory on his terms. And they had violated those terms. And a man named Achan, a single man, stole what had been devoted to destruction. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. Devoted to destruction, devoted to the Lord. He had taken what belonged to God. And as a result... Everything was upset. See, Achan and the people of Israel too, they had forgotten the seriousness of sin. So that's what I want to talk about this morning, the seriousness of sin and our call to guard against the danger of sin as we seek the Lord daily. Well, our passage opens up in verse 1. And here we have... um, a snippet of information. It's like an aside. You remember the old Bugs Bunny cartoons and Bugs Bunny, they'd be chasing each other and then suddenly Bugs Bunny would turn and would talk to you while no one else knew what was going on. Well, that's what's going on in this, this first verse. The narrator is telling us what's going on, but no one else knows what is going to happen. See, it turns out that Achan had, um, had stolen he had stolen something that belonged to the Lord and, and the, the cloak he would steal belonged to destruction itself, should have been destroyed. See, when God called his people to victory in the promised land, he did so on his own terms. And part of that was they were not allowed to take any of the spoil. Every man, woman, and child had to be killed. We're going to deal with that in several weeks. I keep pushing that one back. I don't really want to deal with that one. Uh, we're going to deal with it when we come to Hazor. Um, but the gold and the silver belonged to God. Now, Joshua would have known that soldiers, men, people of flesh, that when you're confronted with temptation, it's pretty rare that someone's not going to fail. And so finally, when, when God's people were about to take the city of Jericho, what are the last instructions he gives? It's not, hey, sharpen your swords. It's not, adjust your armor just right. Get out your shields. What does he say? He says in chapter 6, verse 18, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them, you take away any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Achan knew that he knew that he knew that to take the cloak and the silver and the gold was a sin. And not only was it a small sin, it was a high-handed sin. It was a sin that was specifically forbidden as they took the city of Jericho. We read later in uh, verse 21 that he took a cloak from uh, Shinar, I believe. Uh, what Shinar was the region where the Tower of Babel was created. And uh, he took... Um, 
200 shekels of silver and 50 shekels of gold. Now, that doesn't mean mean a lot to us. Now, our treasurer will tell you that I'm not very good with financial calculations. However, I think I've got this one right. Uh, Friday at noon prices for gold and silver, this would be about $1,000 worth of silver and about $21,000 in gold in today's numbers. That's a lot. That's a lot of gold. Now because of this, because he had, he had sinned against the Lord, because he had taken something that had been devoted to destruction, we read at the end of verse 1, the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. There's a wordplay here. The, the Hebrew actually says that his nostrils flared at Israel. You know, when you're really angry, your, your nostrils do crazy things. And this is what God was doing towards his people. Suddenly, the, his wrath was not against the people of Ai, or the people of Jericho, or the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, all these ites. Who was it against? His wrath was kindled against his people. Something was terribly wrong in this situation. But the people on the ground don't know it. See, this aside is just to the reader. And verse 2 picks up, and it's kind of like, meanwhile, meanwhile, Joshua sent spies into the city of Ai to spy it out. Now that's important. That's a good thing to do, to go spy it out, to know what you're up against. And he sends out these spies and they come back and they say, hey, we got this thing. We've got this thing. There are not a lot of people there. Don't worry the whole people of Israel. Don't, don't force us to, to, un, to discamp, to, to leave the camp, to go together. Just send a small expeditionary force of two to 3,000 people. That's all you'll need. And so Joshua does this, and he sends 3,000 people. But here we find out the ramifications of the anger of the Lord burning against his people because suddenly they are routed. They go, and suddenly the the battle's not going their way, so they turn and they flee. And in the process of fleeing, 36 men are killed. Now, when you think from a military perspective, 1.2% of your force is not that great a number to lose in an attack. But somehow something happened here that caused all of Israel to lose heart. All of Israel for their hearts to melt. We've seen that in chapter 2 verse 11 when Rahab says that their hearts melted when they learned what uh, God had done for his people, defeating kings on the other side of the Jordan. We see that in chapter 5 verse 1 with the kings of Canaan and their hearts melt because the Jordan River was split in two and God's people walked on dry land. But suddenly it is the hearts of the Israelites that are described as having melted and melted like water. Was it over the 36 men, these fathers, these husbands that had died? No, that was not it. Because what this meant, that God no longer fought for his people. Their relationship had been broken. There was something wrong in the camp. And suddenly the God who promised that no one will ever be able to stand before you suddenly was no longer fighting for his people. They crossed the Jordan. If God's not going to fight for his people, he's not going to divide the waters again for them to go back. The manna had ceased. They had no food apart from what was available in the promised land. And not only that, but suddenly everyone in the whole area would hear that their God had abandoned them. They would surround them and cut them off and come off from the face of the earth and kill them all. Something was wrong. Something was rotten. And their relationship with the Lord had been torn asunder. So Joshua and the elders, when they hear this, they... um, 
their hearts melt as well. And so they go and they tear their clothes and they put uh, dirt on their heads, a a sign of mourning. Uh, We mourn as Southerners in a very quiet way, certainly behind closed doors. In those days, to mourn was a very public thing, very public thing. And so they went and they fell down before the Ark of the Covenant, crying out to the Lord, why has this happened? Why have you brought us over the Jordan only to kill us? Would that we had been content to live on the other side of the Jordan. Our enemies are going to come. And what about your name, God? Your name's going to be sullied as well. See, what they didn't know yet, and we'll find out next week, what they didn't know yet is that Achan had done this thing. See, Achan had not taken sin seriously. See, as we think about the dangers of sin, we must first see that sin is serious. I don't think that we take sin very seriously, do we? We deal with it in a flippant manner. There's a, um, a pastor that uh, I count as a mentor, Claude McRoberts, Trinity Montgomery. He said there's no such thing as a safe sin. But we have these categories of safe sins that we can do and these unsafe ones. And as long as we stay away from this list over here, the really bad ones, we're okay. I was coming home last night. Actually, I drove through Castleberry last night and the night before, actually. And, uh, you know, there's some places that you cannot take flippantly your speed. And Castleberry is one of those places. So I came through Castleberry um, Friday night about 8 o'clock. And uh, I'd forgotten that I have a taillight that's out. And that's a pretty obvious thing at night. And I'm thinking, oh, no. I hadn't taken it seriously. I've had it for a month. And I just keep forgetting to do anything about it. I've not taken it seriously. But you better believe I took it seriously as I was passing by the Dollar General in Castleberry. Now, thankfully, there were two cops. They were talking, and so they didn't see me. Last night, uh, I ended up taking a detour through Castleberry so I wouldn't go by them because I knew that they might see my busted taillight and give me a ticket. So tomorrow, I intend to take my taillight seriously and deal with it. So often, I think we deal with sin like that. We deal with it in a flippant manner until we get caught or found out when in reality, all sin is serious. Why is sin serious? That sounds like something a preacher should say, right? But why is sin serious? It's serious because it's personal. All sin is personal. Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned, O God. This is David talking about his sin with Bathsheba. Wait, hadn't her husband died because of his sin? But against you and you alone have I sinned. It was a personal sin against the Lord. There's nothing personal between me and the police department of Castleberry. They write me a ticket and I deserve it, I'm sure. When we sin against the Lord, it's personal. That's borne out in our passage here. In verse 1, when we read about the sin of Achan, it's described in terms of adultery. And all Israel broke faith with the Lord. This Hebrew word is a word that is used elsewhere when one spouse cheats on another. We are in covenant relationship with the Lord. And when we sin against him, we are committing spiritual adultery. All sin is serious. But here's the good news. While our sin is serious, our Savior is serious too. See, he died on the cross for us when we were unfaithful, while we were still sinners, when we were ungodly, And he saved us. He died on the cross knowing that we would continue to be unfaithful to him in our daily walk. 
It's not an excuse to sin, but it's an, it's an amazing fact that this is the, the lavish nature of God's love as demonstrated in the gospel. While we were still sinners, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ, according to Ephesians 2. See, while we remain unfaithful, God remains faithful. Christ died for her bride, the church, and one day we will be presented without spot or blemish, but until then, we will go back and forth between being faithful and unfaithful. But praise the Lord for people like me. Let me rephrase that. I'm thankful that for people like me, a vile, wretched sinner, that there is hope that our Savior is faithful even when we run. See, Jesus died for serious sinners like you and me. Achan also forgot there's no such thing as a private sin. We pretend like that our sin will not affect other people. The things in the dark will always be brought to light. It's only a matter of time. You, you can imagine here, use your imaginations. We're, we're venturing a little bit into imagination, so I'm be careful here. But you can, imagine, you can imagine Achan. Here is a soldier in God's army, in the Israelite army. And the walls have just come down, and, and he's 99% obedient. He kills people he's supposed to kill. He goes and destroys parts of the city. He does what he's supposed to. And then he walks into a wealthy, wealthy person's home. And there hanging on a coat rack is a coat from Shinar. He'd read about it in the southern Canaan living. He'd seen it in uh, Israelite spearmen. He'd seen it in garden and spears. He's always wanted one of these cloaks. And he tries it on and it's a 42 regular. It fits him perfectly. And as he's wearing it, he looks over and there's a strong box in the corner. He's got a sword and a hilt of the sword is pretty heavy, so he just crashes it down and, and outflow. There's the silver and this gold, $20,000 worth of gold. This will put his kids through uh, the Promised Land University, you know. Who wouldn't grab this? No one will know. No one will know. This won't affect anybody. So he takes it. And somehow he hides a large cloak and this, this silver and this gold and We'll see next week that there's no such thing as private sin because in the end, um, 36 men, we see this week, 36 men die. Uh, husbands, fathers, brothers, friends, perhaps only, only children. I mean, a, a, tribe, a clan might be wiped out because of this. But next week we'll see that his sons and his daughters, his wife, his, his sheep, his ox and his donkeys, they will all be stoned with him. There's no private sin. We pretend like there is. We pretend like there is. But see, the, our private sin affects how we deal with other people. Sins like gangrene or cancer Cancer steals the good blood flow from other parts of the body. As we think about body of Christ, we think about we are the body that unrepentant private sin will affect not just us, but others. But here's the good news. For while our sin, we think it's private, in order to deal with our quote-unquote private sin, our Savior was publicly displayed, publicly shamed, publicly executed for us. That we who are unfaithful, we who don't take sin seriously, that we might be forgiven and openly and publicly proclaimed as belonging to our Savior. He's mine. He belongs to me. I died for him. As we see how serious and dangerous our sin is, we understand how great the love of our Savior really is. I find that 
Um, we ought to be aware of temptation in the good times. Have you found that to be true in yourself? In which you're, when you're bebopping along, when you're cruising, temptation just comes out of nowhere. One Puritan, uh, I don't think it was Puritan, somebody else said, uh, you know, you go fastest when you're going downhill. Temptation will bite us when we are doing well. This is what was going on in, in Achan. They were destroying all of Jericho. The walls had just come down without any of them taking up arms against the wall. And God had given the city into their hands. Things were going well for this man. And then temptation came out of nowhere. How do we guard ourselves against serious sin, against dangerous sin, against quote-unquote private sin that's really public and temptation? We turn to the Lord. See, we ought to be beware of the dangers of sin by seeking the Lord daily. Seeking the Lord daily. We do this, but not assuming we have it all covered. Did, did you catch the tone of the report of the spies? Hey, don't worry. Don't send everybody up. We got this thing. We get in a lot of trouble when we assume we've got it under, under control, don't we? No, nowhere in this text, in verses 2 through 5, is the name God mentioned. 2 through 5, which is when uh, the spies go in, and Joshua sends the, the, the army, the, the soldiers, to defeat Ai. And their defeat, the name of God is never mentioned there. Achan's sin, there's no doubt. But it's curious that Joshua never sought the Lord. Throughout the book of Joshua so far, God is the one who called them out of Egypt. God is the one who appointed Joshua uh, to be the leader. God is the one who called them to go over the, uh, the Jordan River and made a way for him. God is the one who called them to be circumcised. Uh, God is the one who provided the plans for the defeat of Jericho and its defeat. And then suddenly we get to this, this chapter 7 and God isn't mentioned when they go and attack Ai. They assume they had it under control. I wonder what would have happened if Joshua would assault the Lord before they went in. Perhaps God would have said, hey, don't go yet. There's a problem in your camp and you need to deal with it. I'm not going to honor your request until you do so. There's no record here of Joshua seeking the Lord. When I first um, got into ministry, the senior pastor went out of town. I was like, sweet. <laughs> he went out of town and now I've got to actually you know, be a minister all on my own. And... Uh, I got to preach two weeks in a row. Now, now that's not a big deal, but back then it was a huge deal. Not from an exciting standpoint, but a how in the world am I going to do this? So that for the first week, I was desperate for the Lord. I sought the Lord all day, every day. You know, I spent three times as much time preparing as I should have. And the Lord honored all of it. And Sunday morning, it went well. And do you know how I came out of that service thinking, thank you, Lord. Thank you. No, I said, I've got this thing. Man, I'm really good. Oh. Oh. First, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. But this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises from the dead. The first part of that says we had received the sentence of death. Well, I received the sentence of the death next Sunday because y'all, it was crash and burn all over the place. I mean, I went down in just, a, just flames of glory. And... Uh, the sermon was terrible. You know it's bad when the pastor wants the sermon to end as soon as it starts. That's a bad place to be. The Lord was very gracious to let me crash and burn because I assumed I had it under control. And this is what the Israelites thought. They had it under control. And as a result, the Lord did not honor their efforts. 
Secondly, um, let me say this. There's nothing in the Christian life that we are called to that we have the strength in our own ability. There's nothing. Let me me say this again. There's nothing in the Christian life that we have the strength to do on our own. Nothing. As husbands, if we were relying on our own strength to be good husbands, how does that work out? Oh yeah, I'm selfish. I'm self-centered. I'm self-absorbed. Go through the whole litany of sins. That's me. Without the Spirit, without relying on the Lord, that's going to come out every day in my marriage. Wives, as you submit to your husbands, as you help raise children, children who are lovely, but can sometimes try your patience, how will you do that without relying on the Lord? Don't assume you've got it under control, because you don't. Don't assume you've got the strength to do it, because you don't. Children, youth, how will you withstand the temptations of this world if you're not relying on the strength of God? You will not do it. Children, how will you respect your parents? How will you love them and serve your brothers and sisters if you're not seeking the Lord? There's nothing that we've been called to that we've been given this, that we have strength in and of ourselves to do. This happens so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on Him who raises the dead. We've been united to Christ and we've been given strength as we seek Him. How do we seek Him? How do we seek him as we say no to sin, as we fight temptation? If It's through the word and prayer. If I ask you, are you seeking the Lord? You say yes. And the next thing I says, tell me about your prayer life and time in the word. And you say, I don't have one. Then I can tell you you're not seeking the Lord. That's how we do it. Because we're desperate for the one who was, who was publicly killed, publicly executed for us. The one who takes our sin more seriously than we do, so serious that he would send his son and crush him on the cross for our sins. We are desperate for that Savior. We are desperate for that God. Joshua thought he knew the whole picture. I find that in my life when I do this, it just makes a bad situation worse. He thought he knew the whole picture. He thought God had abandoned him. Of all the things, the reasons why God could have caused them to be defeated, he could only think of God's infidelity. Our passage started with us seeing how man, how Achan had been unfaithful to God. And now we see that all that Joshua can think of is how God had been unfaithful to him. He didn't have the whole picture. And next week we'll see a pretty rude wake-up call. Well, we are called to guard ourselves from the dangers of sin by seeking the Lord daily. God has called us to victory, but not on our own terms on his, that we might not rely upon ourselves, but rely on God who raises the dead. And we rejoice that when we fail, because we fail daily, when we fail, we have a Savior who has died for us and cleanses us of our sins, forgives our sins and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. We read in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The righteous died for the unrighteous. We are the unrighteous, y'all. If you're wondering who that is, that's you and me. The righteous died for us. That we who are far off, we who are strangers, as we sang earlier, we who are strangers to the grace of God, that we have been brought near, how? By the blood of Jesus, his once for all suffering, his once for all sacrifice for sins. Do you know this Savior? Do you know this Savior? Our sins are serious, but we have a serious Savior with the love with which he loved us, he died for us that we might have life. My friends, he came that we might have victory, but victory on his own terms. 
that we might have victory in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we desire to rely not on ourselves. For Father, we, um, as we look to ourselves, all we see is a mess. Father, help us not rely on ourselves, but to rely on you, O God, who, who raises the dead. And we yearn for the day when the bodies of the dead are called up. And the ark of the, um, the sound of the trumpet, the voice of the archangel, when our Savior descends from the clouds, we pray that day would come soon. Until then, O oh Lord, help us to walk in your strength and not our own. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen.